everyone and welcome to yet another expert conversation run by the UNESCO Inclusive Policy Lab. This is part of our podcast series on post-COVID reset, that is a reset a more equitable and smart path. As always, this podcast will discuss on one hand the concrete policy measures that are seen by our invited experts as being conducive to such an inclusive recovery, and on the other hand, the data and the knowledge we hold or perhaps lack but need to inform the policy shifts. Our experts today are Anna Kut and Math Cohen. Anna is the Principal Fellow at the New Economics Foundation. Math is the project lead with Social Guarantee Network, to which Anna also belongs. This is a network to advance the agenda of universal basic services, and this is key to our conversation today. Anna, Math, welcome. Thank you. I'm Yulia Shevchuk, UNESCO's lead on inclusive policies and data-driven policy shifts, and I'm your host today. So this episode is concerned with universal basic services. We'll cover today the premises, the approach, and the key practicalities of this policy agenda. Importantly, we'll contrast this policy agenda with other options. So Anna Mev, could you succinctly and tangibly explain this agenda to us? Universal basic services starts with the basic idea that every individual everywhere in the world should have access to life's essentials, the things that they need to survive, to participate in society and to flourish. And whether you look at the academic literature or you ask people through local conversations, you tend to come up with the same list of what what every basic human need is, what are basic human needs. And they include things like health and education and um, childcare and food and housing. And uh, and nowadays we would say also transport and internet access. So starting from that idea of what people need, there's much else as well. So it would include access to clean air and water and energy, but we're looking at um, one part of that, that agenda, if you like. Starting from there, you say, well, how do people get their needs met? And we recognize that some things people would expect to pay for themselves. So they need enough money to pay for things like food and clothing. But there are many things that we can't afford to pay for ourselves, which would include health care and education. And for most people, uh, childcare and housing can be far too expensive and possibly out of their reach altogether. So that's where you need to go to collective measures. So we pool our resources, we share the risks, if you like, of what we might need and when we might need them. And we work together to make sure everyone has access to life's essentials. And that's where universal basic services come in. And it's what we call the social guarantee. And the social guarantee combines access to life's essentials through universal services on the one hand, and through a fair living income on the other. And the living income would include um, a living wage and something like a minimum income guarantee. So what you're saying is that it's not a standalone one policy, it's a range of policies and services pulled together in one agenda. Yes, It's it's a framework for policy and practice so that we start with the idea that everyone has a right to life's essentials. And this is how we get there. This is how we achieve that objective. And it's not about doing everything in the same way. It's about understanding that each area of need 
has um, needs a kind of customized approach. So you're not going to give healthcare to everyone in the same way as you would give transport, for example. So you have different strategies for each area of need, but they have the same set of principles. So it's a matter of it being affordable and accessible for everyone. It's about it being an entitlement, not a privilege or a concession. It's about making sure that all the organizations who provide services share a set of public interest obligations to, for example, to you know, give decent paying conditions to their workers and to uh, make sure that the services are of a decent standard. And then the other part of that framework is that it is geared to, designed for a support to the maximum of ecological sustainability. Could you elaborate on the potential of universal basic services in regard to equity and sustainability specifically, these two being two key objectives linked to this policy agenda? Firstly, looking at equity, we know that collectively provided services are incredibly redistributive. So people on low incomes have to spend a much higher percentage of their incomes on essential services. So if these are provided free or at genuinely affordable prices, then this disproportionately benefits people on low incomes. Um, and this is massively backed up by data. So on average in OECD countries, public services are worth the equivalent of over 75% of the incomes of the poorest fifth in society. And that's compared to about 14% of the highest fifth in society. So yeah, providing these things collectively, either affordably or free at the point of use, is massively more beneficial for those on, on low incomes. And then thinking about sustainability, um, there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of different reasons why this is better on sustainability grounds. Like first off, collectively provided services, there's a really good example of healthcare. In the US, it uses almost three times as much carbon per capita as similar um, services that are collectively provided in European countries. So it is, it is low carbon. Um, also, if you've got public or collectively owned um, organisations providing these services, you can gear the mechanisms of those organisations towards sustainable ends. So a good example of this would be um, if you've if the provision of sustainable housing is is the responsibility of the state, you can roll out retrofit across the whole national housing stock, which is a lot more easy and energy efficient and achievable than getting individual homeowners to do every single house themselves. Um, and then last of all, in a sort of well, macro philosophical answer to it, if you're putting the meeting of people's needs at the centre of all political and economic activity, having a planet that's livable on is absolutely an essential human need. So it embeds sustainability in absolutely all service provision. How does uh, universal basic services relate to the agenda of gender and uh, women empowerment? Um, I'm thinking in particular of uh, services uh, that employ uh, uh, women heavily in so many countries. Uh, have you thought about that aspect? Well, absolutely. I mean, particularly, obviously, thinking about the caring industries and a lot of work has been done on this, particularly by, well, the Women's Budget Group has done some amazing work on this, um, looking at how investing in um, the caring industries and social infrastructure, as they call it, is massively uh, more beneficial for women as they are the people that work in these services, but also they are the people that use these services. So if we invest in, um, in the caring industries, it does a great deal to overcome the gender employment gap. It does a great deal to um, overcome the gender pay gap. 
and it means that the women who are who would otherwise be they disproportionately stay at home and look after the children or look after vulnerable adults that need caring for if they can rely on a, a caring system that looks after those um, vulnerable individuals for them then they are able to enter the workforce so it's I think the I can't remember what the figures are, but this report by the Women's Budget Group looking if we invested the same amount in construction and um, in childcare or in the caring industries, you get massively better employment outcomes for investing in social infrastructure. And it's this massively overlooked aspect of, of public expenditure. So we do a great deal towards helping helping the gender question and also just the caring industries is part of it, but um, public transport as well. We know that women disproportionately use public transport. We know that women are disproportionately on low incomes. And as I said earlier, it disproportionately benefits people on low incomes. So it really has a lot to speak to on, on the gendered point. Just to combine the sort of green question and the gender question, the future of our, of our green economy needs to be low carbon intensive, high labour intensive work. And that is exactly what the caring industries are. It's a lot of good jobs and it's relatively low carbon. So care jobs are green jobs um, and it's an essential part of a just transition and the world we want to see after we've transitioned. Thank you. So that is clear in terms of the core idea uh, of universal basic services. Now let's go into comparing uh, uh, this policy agenda to universal basic income. Somehow these two are often framed one versus the other, universal basic services versus universal basic income. There is a competition within the fiscal space maybe, but beyond that, what are the differences and why you think universal basic services would be a superior, better policy solution? Yeah, I mean, we don't think it should be framed at all as a debate between UBI and UBS. And we don't try and talk about it like that. We try and talk about the social guarantee, which is a, a standalone policy framework that can exist independently of UBI. And at the centre of the social guarantee, as Anna has said, is, is meeting people's needs. So obviously at times with food and clothes, that can be through people purchasing things in markets. But for the reasons that, that I've just spoken about, providing these things collectively um, is a lot better on equitable grounds and sustainable grounds. Um, there's also an ideological difference between the two. So UBI depends on individualism and markets. It's about giving individuals money so that they can buy things in markets. Um, as part of our analysis, we think the market-driven need to accumulate profits is, is one of the major underlying causes, both of the ecological crisis we face and it's a driving force of the ever-increasing gaps between the rich and poor and really contributing to, to social inequality. Um, it's also been used as a justification for small statism um, and austerity and the erosion of public services, which vulnerable people depend on. So we don't need more markets. We need less markets. And the social guarantee is all about bringing society together and saying that we as a society are not going to allow anybody to fall beneath this, this particular baseline. We are not going to build a safety net that people can punch holes in and people can fall through. We're going to create a solid foundation upon which everybody can build a successful life. So are you saying that you see the two coexisting UBI and UBS? 
I mean, UBI means different things to different people. We are not saying that UBI and UBS can exist together because we don't think that they can. What we do think can happen is that we can have adequate provision of, of public services and we can also have a minimum income guarantee, which makes sure that everybody has enough money that, to buy life's essentials. And that would generally be through good waged work. But if people aren't able to work, then there needs to be cash benefits to ensure that they don't fall below a specific um, income standard. I think there's a lot of loose talk around universal basic income. People mean, it may have said many, many different things. And I think often what people are trying to establish is that people should have a right to have enough money. Not that everybody should be given the same amount of money, whether they need it or not. And so that's why we think that UBS or universal services can be best combined with a, a minimum income guarantee or what if you like to call it that you can call it a basic income guarantee but that's very different from what uh, universal basic income is uh, means in terms of most of its advocates most of its leading advocates would say you've got to give regular unconditional payments to um, everybody and it's got to be enough to live on well if you do that you will not have enough money for universal services and if you don't have enough money for universal services, then most people will not be able to have access to life's essentials. So we want to find a kind of non-conflictual way to drive through the middle of this debate. And I think that's what the social guarantee is doing. I was trying, Anna, to pull you into this uh, question. I heard you uh, saying on some panel that so much attention being paid to universal basic income actually distracts from other agendas that we need to be talking about in terms of research, and we're going to come to that uh, uh, later too, but also in terms of public debate, um, analysis, policy uh, process, and and all of that. Do you stand by, by that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it was alarming to see the kind of bandwagon gathering strength in favor of this thing that people referred to as UBI, which we know very well would not leave enough fiscal or ideological space, if you like, for, for universal services. And that people who were, you know, who were in the whose hearts were in the right place, but they just don't pay attention to what it takes to develop and uh, build up a decent array of public services that will enable people to get access to life's essentials. So they'll say, oh yes, of course we want public services, but then they don't say anything else. They don't say how it's going to be paid for, uh, what it means, you know, how it can be organized and so on. And, and they don't give it any priority and they don't think about it. So this, we're trying to write the balance, but we'd like to talk about the collective and the things that we do together to help each other. That's what we're on about. Would one of your concerns uh, or fears be that UBI is actually a Trojan horse uh, uh, that uh, could possibly be used to dismantle the services and the um, systems we have now in place? Absolutely. Most progressive advocates of UBI wouldn't see it that way, but I'm afraid that would be the function that it would serve. Pushing a bit further along uh, uh, these lines, some uh, advocates of UBI say that this is a single policy with immediate turnaround effects. And that makes it possibly a more feasible solution to meet the size and the urgency of the crisis we face now. 
universal basic services, on the other hand, is a complex suite of, of policies. It requires high state capacity. It renders results more medium to long term. Um, in other words, they say that UBI is the solution for now and possibly we should be working towards universal basic services in future. What would be your response to this? Well, I mean, I don't, so UBI means a million different things to a million different people. So first off, I don't think it is this one, one policy answer that can fix all the problems. In many countries, there is no mechanism to implement the UBI. So how would you ensure that all citizens get whatever amount of money? Like there's talks about central bank digital currency, which might do that in, in a few years time, but that currently doesn't exist. So how would you actually implement a UBI? What we do have, however, is in, in many, many countries is social infrastructure. We have mechanisms through which we can improve people's pu public services that are long established. And in countries that don't have them, we've got a lot of countries that do have them. So there's a lot of knowledge there about how you implement these things. So actually, I think politically, it's, it's considerably more easy to improve public services than it is to instigate this, this brand new policy in a way that we don't actually know how we could we could instigate this policy. I also, it's not, you don't have to do it all at once. We don't have to improve. I mean, I would love it if we improved all the services all at once, but it's a lot more politically viable, I think, for a party to come up and say, we are going to invest heavily in healthcare and improve healthcare and move us towards a social guarantee or towards universal basic services. Bring in a government who'll say, right, we're going to yeah, roll out retrofitting across the country. Like These individual things that all add to a social guarantee or all add to a suite of universal services can be done individually and incrementally as well. So I actually think it's a lot more politically um, likely that we would get a UBS rather than a UBI. And that's been our experience since we've launched the social guarantee. It's really been very remarkable about how how appealing it has seemed to be to, to, to policymakers who have, I think some of them, begun to despair that there's nothing on, there's nothing out there um, that is, uh, you know, it's just you've got a lot of people shouting about UBI. And, and all the countries that have either said they're going to have field experiments on it or have had them, they've never actually gone from having the experiment to actually implementing UBI because because as Maeve says it's very difficult and it's very expensive but policymakers can understand what public services are about because we have examples all around us and they like the idea of enhancing and ex improving and expanding that approach the collective approach to meeting everybody's needs. It sounds to me as if uh, for the case of universal basic services, you're describing a country jurisdiction with a good baseline in terms of existing services and capacity to expand those. While in many countries, especially developing countries, uh, we start from very low base. There are not that many services and they are not that strong. So in that context, would you think that uh, or would you say that universal basic services might be better fit for developed advanced economies or countries with robust systems in place, while UBI may be a solution, at least for now, for developing countries? I, I absolutely cannot see how UBI could be a solution for developing countries. 
Um, if you look at where there are experiments, they're usually funded through philanthropy. And um, they will usually, and I mean, I've been looking at the evaluation of, uh, of one of those field experiments, the one in, in southern India, and, they, and the evaluators said, uh, this couldn't work without services. So, and I don't think it's true that in developing countries, they've got no experience of services. They've got, uh, you know, they, they've got roads, they've got schools, they've, they've got the beginnings of what we need. There's lots to build on there. And, and it's a far more efficient and effective use of public money because you have economies of scale, you don't have all the transaction costs and the um, moral hazards that you encounter if you're just going to try and meet people's needs through the market. So you get, you get a much better result from the money that you are investing if you go through collective measures than if you just simply go for individual measures and market solutions. Now let's go into the politics of policymaking. And again, talking UBI versus uh, uh, UBS, some would say that UBI attracts uh, support from all political spectrum, the right and the left, while UBS may be criticized or seen um, as uh, an increase in government intervention, hence experience a pushback. Do you think that is true or not? Well, I think, I mean, whatever political idea you're going to give, you're going to get some pushback. Of course, you're going to get some pushback. I think UBI is, we, I mean, UBS came out of some pushback against UBI. So yes, UBI might have some support across the political spectrum, but also it's got a lot of pushback across the political spectrum. And we've been speaking to people across the political spectrum and some people support it and some people push back. And our job, mine and Sarah, Anna's job at the Social Guarantee is to, is to give the give a strong argument as to why we believe that universal basic services is, is the right way to go and provide the evidence and um, framing to back that up. Our job is to convince people that it's the right thing to do and show that it's the right thing to do and give examples of where it's being, where it's happening um, and how it could happen and try and get countries to adopt it. I think there's a lot to be learned from the experience we've had so far of public services. One of the main criticisms that we get from some critics, in fact, there are very, very few critics of UBS as an idea, but they tend, they tend to accuse us of advocating for a big state and sort of top-down government. And actually, if you look at the detail of what we're proposing, it's exactly the opposite because we've learned from the problems that were encountered by the post-war welfare states in the richer countries. So what we do is we advocate not um, the state providing everything, we advocate uh, devolution. We advocate a, a multiplicity of providers who are all tied into the same set of public interest obligations, which is different from saying the state should provide everything. And we, we are very keen supporters of co-production and democratic dialogue for making the, the key decisions, the democratic dialogue for making the decisions about you know, what you prioritise and how you organise services in the first place and co-production for making the key decisions about how they're de delivered to people at ground level. So the, the vision we have of public services is informed by a great deal of experience from across the world, actually, of how you can do public services well and how you can do it badly. And so we, we've got a, a very different agenda from the agenda that was um, that, that was dominant in the middle of the last century. 
Yeah, I think it's a really good point about using what we know has worked and it's about recognizing what the failings were in the past but also not throwing the baby out with the bathwater and recognizing that actually collective provision of public services in a lot of cases has, has really worked and the erosion of those public services has has caused a lot of people a lot well i was going to say a lot of hassle it's more than caused people hassle it's cost lives and it's cost livelihoods and so i think we recognise that there's, we need to adapt our public service provision to the 21st century, to, to the world as it is now, not least because of the ecological collapse, but also because the world has changed and the way that we access the world has changed. But yes, that central idea of people have a right to having their basic needs met is, is a really important one. What are the countries you are working uh, in now? Well, we're working mainly in the UK. We have uh, links with people in other European countries. But when we did the initial research uh, about universal basic services, we were looking right across the world to see where there were examples that we thought we could learn from. Uh, they are mainly in in Europe, Europe, but we've also looked at Singapore and we've looked at Hong Kong for, for certain kinds of housing schemes. I mean, you know, these things will change. We've we think there are examples right across the world we can learn from, but the model is um, initiated in the UK and highly relevant and supported across European countries. And we think that it can be uh, it can be adapted for different circumstances in different countries right across the world. Your mention of research brings us to a critical part of this conversation. So uh, uh, our whole purpose here at the UNESCO Inclusive Policy Lab is to connect knowledge and data to policy on the ground. And we have uh, um, researchers, knowledge producers and policy makers as stakeholders. So let's talk to these two groups. Talking to research communities, what do you think are the research and knowledge gaps they need to be addressing and digging deep into uh, when it comes to universal basic services? Well, I think there is a lot more work to be done on both what the financial costs are of, of providing a suite of universal services, but also what the um, environmental and social gains are. So, um, Yes, we've done done a bit of research on this and we've got some back of the envelope um, solutions. But yeah, the next big piece of research that we're hoping to undertake is looking at the financial costs and the um, environmental and social gains of a social guarantee. And then also, as Anna was saying, a lot of it is to do with increasing economic democracy, co-producing services um, and exercising democracy in spaces like citizens assemblies and citizens juries and devolving power down to, to, norm, to ordinary people. So there's, a, there's some work that we would like to do on, on how we implement that as well at a larger scale. And I think the other thing, well, one other thing, there are many other things we could be researching, but um, to look in more detail at the ways in which collective provision of services and other activities to meet people's needs um, are, are sustainable. You know, what are the sort of structural and systemic ways in which they're sustainable? And how does it work in the different sectors in different areas of need? So, yeah, there's a big agenda here and there's an agenda 
about I mean, the, the agenda about how much does it cost is complex because in every area of need, the, the services are different and they're differently provided. And it depends on how you do it, on who's providing, on how on the scale and quality and all sorts of things like that. But we need to start doing this and putting some more flesh on the bones in terms of the cost and these returns that you get for the investment that you make from universal services in terms of the social benefits and the economic benefits and the ecological benefits. Now, addressing policymakers, would, what would be your key policy recommendations and what would be the data and the findings and the messages you think policy actors should uh, pay closer attention to when discussing universal basic services or when they factor in your policy agenda into the whole idea of an equitable post-COVID recovery? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> I think I think we're, we're asking policymakers to consider this as not as a, a kind of a quick fix or a silver bullet. It's a policy framework. It's a framework for policy and practice. And it's a principle framework. So we're asking the policymakers to, to take on board the principles of that framework, which is about uh, meeting people's needs, making sure everyone has life's, uh, access to life's essentials. It's about universal access. It's about entitlement rather than concession. And it's about um, multiple providers and it's about sustainability. And, um, and I think we want if, if we want to we want politicians to stop thinking just about the economy as a matter of 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 cash money cash and to think about and start with needs as their starting point and then to understand how it is that we can make sure everyone's needs are met not through cash alone but mainly through the provision of collective measures and universal services is there something critical you would like to draw to the attention to our listeners that I just didn't ask you? Here's one thing. Since you are in, in the position that you're in, I would say, can we try to have a conversation with people who are fixated on the idea of the UBI and, and encourage them to think about universal services? as a way of meeting needs and the trade-offs between the two ideas. There's a, a poor understanding on all sides, perhaps, of the trade-offs. So if you're going to have this solution about UBI, you, can't, you wouldn't have enough money left to pay for more and better public services. How can we find a solution to the problem of people needing to have enough money as well as services. We think it's the minimum income guarantee and we haven't spoken very much about that today. And I think that could be the subject of another podcast or um, certainly something that we could encourage people to talk more about. We reached the end of this podcast. Anna, Math, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you. To the rest of the listeners, thank you for following the Inclusive Policy Lab and our PolicyNet podcast channel. Please do come back for more debate, data and solutions on how to reset equitably after COVID-19.